We're in the book of Philippians today, continuing on with our series of the writings. We're going to pick it up in chapter 1, verse 27. We talked about last week how this is a letter written to this Roman colony of Philippi. It really was, I called it, the Texas of their day. It was the place where the retired soldiers from Rome went. It was a a patriotism magnet. uh, And it was a hard place to be a Christian and say, Jesus is Lord. When, When the Roman belief was that Caesar was Lord. So it was a difficult place. And Paul's writing back to them from prison. He's in a difficult place too. And he's talking to them about how to remain faithful in this difficult time. Now, he centered really the whole letter around part of our text today, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, which was a hymn or a poem that was used in the early church from best we can understand. And we're going to kind of incorporate that. That's part of our text today. But we saw last week Paul was really confident about the Philippians. He was confident that what God had started, God would complete that God was the one that was going to finish this task that was going on. And he also, he, he called them, he prayed that their love would grow in knowledge and in depth of insight. And today we pick up in 127, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man, one person for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad, and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. 
Now, Paul's concern as he continues in this letter and as he builds toward this hymn or this poem, his first concern is that they live a life worthy of the gospel. He's writing from, the prison, from prison and he's embodying that kind of life. He's living it out right there. It's a way of living worthy of the gospel when you suffer to remain faithful. And it's all shaped by this poem in, in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2. And there's two aspects about this living in a worthy way that he has in the text, especially at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. The first thing we get, the first thing is if, if, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, we have to get what he's talking about last week. The gospel is that we can be confident that God who has started a work in us will finish it. And we can be confident that we are deeply loved and that love can grow and be shared with others. Those two things from last week are important. And when we do that, we can start living boldly through difficulty. He says in verse 28, without being frightened by them that oppose you. These people are struggling. They're, they're at, at risk of going to jail themselves. And, and he's saying you can, can live in the middle of this without fear. You can live boldly through difficulty by resting in what, what I just talked about. This confidence that what God is doing in you is going to be finished in you. That he will not fail. Building the Golden Gate Bridge back in 1937, there was a budget for the Golden Gate Bridge of $35 million. Can you imagine building that bridge for $35 million today? Wouldn't have happened. But there was also a thing that everybody knew about these suspension bridges was that for every million dollars in budget, one person would die in construction. So they knew when they set the budget at 35 that on average 35 men would die as they were building this bridge. Well, Joseph Strauss, who was the contractor, did not want that to happen. And so uh, here's the bridge being built, right? And what he decided was, in order to build this bridge, we are going to invest in the protection of our workers. And the second slide, he, he, he bought a net that cost $130,000. And it extended 10 feet out on either side of the construction. During the construction, 19 guys fell off the, feet, fell off the bridge and were caught by the net. 19 guys. In fact, at one point, they had to say, no more jumping on the net. <laughs> because the guys would do it for fun. And, and the, the interesting thing was that they finished the bridge 25% faster than they expected to finish it because the guys were not terrified of falling. And, and what Paul's saying is because you understand that Christ has started something in you and he's going to finish it, you have the freedom from fear to actually boldly live through the difficulty. You know that you're going to be safe even if they kill you. You're safe. They can live boldly through the difficulty. And he says, you know, you've been, you've been given this gift. You've been granted to suffer with Christ. This is a gift that God's given to you, and you can trust through that. But there's another aspect about the living worthy of the gospel. He says they, have to live, they, they want to be living together as one. And this is a hard one for us, because when we think of being one, we think about agreement. We think like each other. We agree on the same thing, so we're one. And... And in some ways, that is true, but it's way too small a concept. Look at what he writes in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one person for the faith of the gospel. It's not just a mental agreement. It's actually a deeper 
unity and oneness than we can actually think of. Our culture doesn't think that way. We think of ourselves very individualistically. And, and what he's saying is the oneness that this confidence brings us, the oneness that the love of God brings us actually unites us together in a deeper way than we can even realize. Uh, it, it may surprise you to find out that, that my wife and I are VIPs. This week, I entered a contest with the Fraser Valley Bandits, which is a basketball team that I'm sure you're all following every second. <laughs> and Ansel and I won two VIP tickets. That's right, you know, I'm expecting some kudos on that, to watch the game on Thursday night. Well, the first five minutes of the game were horrible. The Fraser Valley Bandits were behind 21 to 2 at the end of the first five minutes. But they, they only lost by 10. They actually came back, and had they not had that first five minutes, they would have won the game. Anyway... But my wife, who's a great strategist of basketball for some reason, I don't know where she hears about it all the time, but she said, they're just not playing as a unit. This other team just knows what they're doing. And it, and it was so obvious that the team from Edmonton, like they would throw the ball to where nobody was because a person was coming there. They, they acted as a unit. Whereas for that first five minutes, Fraser Valley looked like five individuals that weren't even sure that they knew each other's names. And, and, and what Paul's saying is the way we need to live is, is like as one, right? Jesus says in John 17, just, just think about this for a minute. My prayer is not for them alone, his disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father. How? Just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Now, we don't know how to comprehend that in our world. What does that mean? He wants us to be one the way the Father and the Son are one. And they really are one. They don't just think alike. They are one. And that's what, what the gospel does. That's something that can only happen by the Spirit knitting us together. It's not just thinking alike. It's actually sharing a relationship with each other. In 2.1, he says, now that you, if you have any of these things from being united with Christ, in union with Christ, that's how we, we come together, is we're all kind of brought into Christ in union with him by his forgiveness. And Paul begins to describe what it looks like. In 2.2, he says, being like-minded, you are thinking the same way, uh, you're having the same love, you're one in spirit, you're one in purpose, and you're doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, you're considering others better than yourselves. You're looking out for your interests, yes, but you're also looking out for the interests of the others. It's this beautiful picture of what the church is called to be, a place where we serve and love each other, surrendering ourselves to someone greater. You can almost see Paul as he's writing, thinking about, I need a metaphor. I need a, I need a visual for this. I need somehow for people to understand what this life worthy of the gospel looks like. And then this poem or hymn comes to him. We know it's probably not one that he penned because the word choice is just in Greek is very different than, than words Paul ever used. And it seems to be something that someone else had written about Jesus and that they would sing it in the churches or share it together. He says, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Because Paul says, you know, when it comes to living a life worthy of the gospel, Jesus demonstrates our calling. That's where we see it. In this poetic rendering of the work of Jesus, we begin to see the things that have deeply shaped Paul under, Paul's understanding. 
And he calls us to follow the same example. Let's just look at it step by step. Verse 6, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus' example to us starts with a refusal to grasp for our rights. He was God. He had every right not to do this. It says, who being in the very nature God, did not consider that something that he had to hold on to. He had a right to stay right where he was. He was God. And, and you have to hear this poem in light of the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, made to live with him. And Satan says, you want to be like God? He's holding out on you. You need to grasp for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You need to take what's yours. And what we see is Jesus is not grasping what's his. He's actually letting it go. So much of our anger today is centered around our rights. I promise I won't bring that social media platform up in this sermon that I seem to talk about every week. But I've subtly done it by referring, referring to it. But everybody on that social media platform is struggling. They're mad because their rights are being... And I'm like, Christians, we don't have rights. We, we lay them down. Jesus is our example. He had every right to stay God. And yes, you have a right to be treated with dignity and respect. But you know what? If that's what you're going to fight for in your life, you're not following the example of Christ. He, he would let go of his rights. We have our right to privacy. We have our right to our stuff. We have a right to our time. We have a right to our own ideas. But, but in Jesus, we see him laying aside these rights. And it says, he makes himself nothing. The Greek word there is kenosis. And it literally means he pours out himself. He empties himself. He's, he's hollowing himself out to make space for something else, which is in verse 7, and takes on the very nature of a servant. Jesus demonstrates our calling by becoming a servant. And notice it doesn't say Jesus served. How many of you have been to a restaurant and had a waiter that served you but was not a servant? Right? How many times have your kids obeyed you but they were not obedient? Right? There, there's this heart. And it doesn't say Jesus, you know, let go of, of his claim. to of, He emptied himself and served us. It says he actually took on the very nature. He became a servant. You know, you can do servant things and yet not be a servant. And yet Jesus' example to us is of become, taking on the very nature of a servant and being found, what's it say, let's continue, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. It's followed by his humility and his obedience, even death on a cross. What he, when he became a human like us, that was a huge step downward. A lot of people describe this as, as God's downward mobility. You know, in the, in the career field, they want you to have upward mobility. You want to be moving up. If you move to a different company, you want to go higher. You want to be moving up. But what we see with Jesus here is this constant downward mobility. But even beyond becoming human, he humbled himself. And, and for us, you know what humility is? Humility is acknowledging the truth for us. We're just not all that good. We mess up. That's humility for us. For God, it was actually laying aside because he was all that good. He was everything. He took on humility, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is what it looked like. Watch this. Oh, somebody moved my chair. Who moved my chair? Okay, there was a chair up there. No, that's okay. Just imagine me one step higher. I was going to climb up on a chair up here. 
Oh, there, uh, that one wobbles. I picked that one from the foyer, and I specifically picked over that one. So don't bring the wobbly one. Imagine me on a chair, right? So and just listen to it this. Who is in very nature God on this chair? And steps down. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Kenosis, pouring himself out. Taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death and even death on a cross. I mean, that from up there in that invisible chair where I started, to death, that's what we see God doing. The God of the universe steps down, 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 down. Paul says that's the life worthy of the gospel. That's the way it looks. And how can you do that? How, how do you do that? How do you live that kind of life? How do you set aside your rights and live humbly and obedient even to the point of death? It comes back to last week again. Because we know that success is not us being elevated. It's us letting God do what God's going to do. And he will complete it. Jesus could do this downward mobility because he was trusting God, the Father, with the outcome. That's verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, we can let go of our rights. We can humble ourselves. We can actually become servants. We can surrender humbly and obediently even to the point of death because we know that God is the one who completes what he started. We can rest in that. He's the one who finishes the story, and Paul continues in our text today by, to reiterate our calling, and I love this phrase, is to shine like stars. To shine like stars. How do we live in light of this explanation of what Jesus has done? How do we translate this poetic rendering of a profound truth into my life and your life? How do we live that out? He says in verse 15, we're to shine like stars, and we do that by working out what God has worked in. Verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now see, this is not a passive life that we're called to. Jesus was constantly... Stepping downward, downward, downward. But it, they, were acts, they were actions he was taking. <laughs> and so much of our thoughts about Christianity and our activity for God is I'm going to do great things for God. I'm going to do all these great, I'm going to climb mountains, I'm going to do all these great things for God. And you know what? When we're doing great things for God, guess who the story is all about? It's all about us. But, but, when we are responding to what God has done on our behalf, we're still taking action, but it's all about him. And I love Paul's return to the confidence again. He says, you know what? You guys have always obeyed. Even when I was there, you obeyed, but you've been faithful. He's confident in what God is doing in these people and how they're responding. But he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. Now, that idea of working out is this idea of completing or fulfilling something that's already been done. It started, and he said that. 
You've been called, and God will bring it to completion. But in the meantime, you are working out what God has worked in. He's begun the work, and he will complete it. But we are responding to him every day by surrender. And verse 12 and 13 in English have a common word, work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. Those aren't the same Greek words. The, the Greek word in the first one is katergazomai, which means to bring about or to complete, to fulfill something that's already been started. The word work in verse 13, where God who works in you, is just see if you know what word we get from this. The Greek word is energeo, energy. What he's saying is, you guys, God has started something in you, and you want it to come out. You want to complete what God started, and God is the one who's going to energize and drive that. As you surrender, it's actually him working in you to will and to act according to his purpose. We're called to live out what God is doing in us, and that comes back to our love growing and knowledge and depth of insight. Same thing from last week. As we better understand and experience the love of God for us and in us, it drives our behavior in ways that express that to the world. And, and almost reflexively, like you ever been at the doctor and they hit your knee and it goes and you watch it and you're like, how did that happen? You ever see that? This reflex. As you grow in the love of God, reflexively you actually do what Paul says, you hold out the word of life to people around you. Anybody like lemon loaf from Starbucks? Okay. The first person that comes up here gets it. I'm just holding it out. Whoever wants to come get it. Okay, come on. You got it. Okay, I saw it. Oh, Linda's coming. Linda's coming. Linda's coming. Up. Oh, there you go. Hey. Okay, take it. Good for you, Linda. I want you to notice that none of my generation got up. And all of you guys are kicking yourself for it. You can't eat that till your dad says you can eat that, by the way. Just so you know. That image, that's what Paul says. You're holding out the word, the logos, which was in, in Greek thinking it was the logos was the one thing that tied all of reality together. The word and of life, Zoe, of spiritual true life. And he says, you know what you guys are doing? As you follow the example of Christ and surrender, and you work out what the love that he's given to you, what he's energizing in you, what you're actually doing is holding out the word of life. You shine like stars. You don't have to, I didn't have to sell, I almost had to sell the cake. Thank goodness there were some people who had a little courage. But you don't have to sell it. You hold it out. It's right there. And as you live that downward mobility of Jesus, believe me, people will be drawn to that. The Holy Spirit will energize what you are working out and enable you to shine like stars. And see, Paul is concerned both with the how and the what. He reminds us that working out what God has worked in is holding out the word of life, but he says, he talks about how we hold it out. This has been the theme throughout the text. You know, in verse 27 of chapter 1, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. In verse 27, stand firm. Verse 28, without fear. Chapter 2, verse 2, love each other. Chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Chapter 2, verse 3, consider others better than yourself. 2, verse 4, look not only to your interests, but the interests of others. He's saying, follow the example of Jesus. He comes back to it in 2.14. Now, do nothing with complaining or arguing. See, the way we live... (laughs) speaks louder than what we say most of the time. 
And that's why sometimes when we're trying to do these great things for God and elevate ourselves, all the world hears is, what, is how we're saying it. Paul says, you follow the example of Jesus and you hold out the word of life. And it will speak volumes. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a poem. I came across it this week. I'd never read it before. And I'm going to try to read it, but it's a hard one to read perfectly. It'll be on the screen. The woman singeth at her spinning wheel a pleasant chant, ballad, or barcarol. She thinketh of her song upon the whole far more than of her flax. And yet the reel is full, and artfully her fingers feel with quick adjustment, provident control, the lines too subtly twisted to unroll out a perfect thread. I hence appeal to the dear Christian church that we may do our Father's business in these temples murk, thus swift and steadfast, thus intent and strong, while thus, apart from toil, our souls pursue some high, calm, spheric tune and prove our work the better for the sweetness of our song. I love that poem. So you know what she's saying? Work hard. You bet. Respond to the love of God. Hold out the word of life. But instead of making that the project, let your heart be focused on what God has done for you, this love and grace of God, and, and be singing this song of, a, of something higher, of being transformed. You know what? And your work will be sweeter for the sweetness of the song. That's the picture here. We can, we can hold out the word of life sometimes in a way that looks like death. <laughs> and it's not very appealing. We're like, come on, take it. Take it. Take it or I'll hit you with this book. <laughs> take it or I'll, I don't know what I'll do, but I'll make you take it. And Paul says, we shine like stars in the middle of this universe holding out the word of life. If you just see what Jesus has done and let it impact you, let it work in you and work out of you. To rest in that love and trust that he will finish what he started. And, and that's where Paul ends in this section, rejoicing in God's direction. What you don't, may not pick up on in verse 17, Paul thinks again of his own death. Remember back in 121, he's saying, well, I may die here in prison, but for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And here he talks about in 217, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. Just notice this too, if you can focus past that for just one second. I'm sure you can. On the sacrifice and service coming from your great knowledge. On the sacrifice and service coming from your great faith. It's, it's your faith and belief that God will finish what he started, that he loves you despite your brokenness. That's what brings out your sacrifice and your service. And what he's saying here is, really, guys, if, if everything I'm doing is only poured out on your sacrifice and service, if that's all it is, and I'm left empty, I'm still going to rejoice because God is the one that's going to complete what he started. You see, the final idea, our example, Jesus, both embraces and empowers us. He's descended to us, and even below, by humbly offering himself on the cross. He embraces us as we are, broken and needy, with nothing to offer. And then he empowers us to live differently, to be pulled out. You see, God's up there on the chair, and we feel down here. And some of you struggling with whatever, whether it's, it's, it's um, 
issues of anxiety and fear, or whether it's tensions around work, or whether it's family brokenness, or whether it's health concerns, whatever it may be, and you feel down on the floor and you feel like God's way up there, and what are you doing? What I want you to see is God is the one who comes down, 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 down to where you are with you and says, I love you. I may know, you may not understand this right now. I love you, I'm with you, and I will finish what I've started. I will embrace you, and I will empower you to be different. You know, maybe you are like Paul. You feel your life being poured out, and you're like, I just don't know if I can do it. That whole idea of being poured out is kenosis. That's exactly, made himself nothing. And Paul says, you know, the reason I can do that, the reason I can trust that, even if I'm just poured out like a drink offering and there's nothing left of me, I'm following the example of Jesus who made himself nothing. And God will finish what he started. He, he, he's called you to work out what he has worked into you and to hold out the word of life, to shine like a star in the middle of a crooked and depraved generation. Giving this this truth, not, not a cognitive, hey, you, you need to think about this. I mean, we do engage people that way. But the point is, the reality that we're holding out is that God who was there came here, where we are. And I'm holding that out to you. And he loves you, despite your brokenness, despite your suffering, despite your pain. And he will be with you. And he will finish what he started. That is good news. It's, and sometimes, you know what, it doesn't feel like good. Life doesn't look like there's good news there. But sometimes we just hold on to the fact that the God who was there came here and he will never leave us or forsake us. And Paul says a life worthy of the gospel is a life that surrenders to follow the example of Jesus. Let's pray. Yeah, we, this is above our pay grade. To be like Jesus, we, we need you to work in us, to will and to act according to your good purpose. We get so distracted by our rights and the things we want, by the struggles that face us in our life. I pray, God, you would just remind us today that we are not alone. You did not stay where you were, but you came to be with us. That by your grace, you live in us, you love us, you accept us as we are, and you will walk with us through the struggles of our everyday. Help us, God, to live in complete dependence upon you, wholly surrendered to the fact that you have started something in us and you will complete it. And give us the grace and the courage to work out daily what you've worked in, to, to hold out the word of life so that as people walk beside us, they will see clearly who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's... I just want to leave you with these words from 1 Peter 5, 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.